Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode continues our summer series on not E3 game news. In other words, reacting to game news that would have come out at E3, but instead came out in drips and drabs during the summer because of the virus. On episode 69, we discuss history game news that came out of Sony's showcase, EA Play, and from Sega. Today we'll be considering the events and news from Ubisoft and Microsoft's events. To help me wade through these topics, I've invited onto a show a leading panel of historians and scholars of play, including John Harney. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. How are you? Great. We also have games journalist and Royal Holloway PhD candidate, Holly Nielsen. Welcome back, Holly. Oh, thank you. It's great to be back. And rounding out the panel, we have Rockstar Games expert and newly named lecturer in digital history at Cardiff University, Esther Wright. Welcome back, Esther. Thank you for having me back also. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations on the new job. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Uh, So on the last Not E3 episode, we talked about events for Sony, EA, and Sega. Uh, In particular, we talked about Horizon Forbidden West, uh, Paradise Lost, Humankind, Old World, Uh, And then Total War Troy, which came out uh, just last week, actually. Uh, And before we get started with more recent news, I wanted to know if anybody on the panel, particularly Esther and Holly, if you had anything that you wanted to react to regarding the events from Sony or EA or from Sega. (laughs) Trying to remember now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, trying to keep track of anything at the moment is is really pushing my short-term memory, but... Yeah, um, maybe not. I remember thinking the Sony one I quite like, especially in comparison to the Microsoft one, which kind of pushed all their indie titles into the pre-show. They kind Mm -hmm. of did a quick kind of, and here's some indie games, kind of Sony kind of (laughs) kind of had them as part of their actual big show, which I liked quite a lot. I know a few people were kind of angry and kind of going, well, why is this little game on my big you know, PlayStation 5 reveal show, but I actually <laughs> prefer that way better to kind of the Microsoft approach of kind of, and here's some indie games, and then showing it to Halo and, <laughs> and things like that. I definitely agree. I love that approach. And I think that's been a big part of PlayStation's business model, mm. you know, since the announcement mm. of PlayStation 5, where they had a whole indie showcase that started off their their main show for the PlayStation 4. So I think it's encouraging to see them do the same thing for PlayStation 5. We'll see. I mean, it was successful last time, so why not Why not just keep doing it, I suppose? Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's get started with talking about Ubisoft. And uh, as we start with talking about Ubisoft, we're focusing on their event, which they held on July 12th. Uh, but as you probably know, in the lead up to this event, we learned of numerous allegations of sexual harassment sexual assault uh, against many members of Ubisoft's executive team and their leading content creation team. Uh, This group included their editorial vice president, Maxime Balland, their chief creative officer, Serge Haskaway, and Ashraf Ismail, who was the creative director for many Assassin's Creed games, including, most recently, AC Valhalla. Uh, Now, the allegations against these individuals and others went back several years and related to misconduct and harassment uh, that was perpetrated across the globe, uh, not just in Ubisoft's world headquarters in France, uh, but then also in their various satellite studios and headquarters uh, based around the world. Uh, So in other words, this is harassment and misconduct that went on 
for a really long time and was pervasive throughout the company. And in large extent, it was also aided and abetted by Ubisoft's uh, HR, uh, which knew about many of these uh, incidents and yet did mostly nothing to, uh, about them. Uh, so in the last month since this news broke, all of those who were accused or were being investigated have now been dismissed. Uh, but Ubisoft has largely attempted to sweep this news under the rug. Uh, the company did not mention the scandal at their event on July 12th. Uh, and since then, that event, they've also largely attempted to focus on promoting their fall lineup of games. Uh, now, typically when we get news like this, it's common for a large section of kind of the gaming audience as it is uh, to argue that these disgusting events are behind the scenes and shouldn't necessarily determine how we perceive the resulting games. Uh, but in this case, in the case of this uh, Ubisoft news, we also learned through these allegations that this culture of sexism that pervaded throughout the company also had a major impact on the development and marketing of their games, particularly the Assassin's Creed series. Uh, there was an important story from Jason Schreier at Bloomberg News uh, that Ubisoft and their development and marketing team had chose to downplay female characters in their more recent Assassin's Creed titles. Uh, so this includes uh, AC Syndicate uh, with the character Evie. This includes uh, Assassin's Creed Origins with the character Aya. Uh, and then Assassin's Creed Odyssey with the character Cassandra. Uh, and I, I don't want to speak for John, but uh, History Respawn is Team Cassandra. 100%. Um, you can speak for me. That's awesome. fair. Yes. <laughs> so uh, all of this news is awful. Uh, it's awful for the women who were subjugated uh, to this abuse uh, and to this harassment. Uh, and before I th turn things over to our panel, I wanted to say that for History Respawn, uh, you know, we've built a lot of our content on covering Ubisoft's games, particularly Assassin's Creed. Uh, and this news makes it really difficult uh, to be enthusiastic about Ubisoft's upcoming titles. And to a large extent, it makes me personally embarrassed uh, to have covered so many Ubisoft games, particularly these games uh, in which the development process involved not just sidelining female characters, uh, but then also uh, sexual harassment and abuse. Uh, and I know my opinion doesn't really count for much, but I just wanted to put it out there. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I'll turn things over now to the panel. Uh, if you care to share, uh, what are you feeling about Ubisoft now in the wake of all of this news that we've had over the past month? Um, I know I personally didn't watch their uh, event. I kind of caught up with the news and stuff that happened afterwards, but I just remember at the time thinking, you know what, I don't want... I. I don't want to have to, I'm in a position where my research and my job doesn't rely on me watching this right now. So I'm just going to give this a miss because this is all very close to home and it's all just, yeah, it's it's just really awful stuff coming out. And obviously that it wasn't just, you know, a few bad apples. It was a culture um, problem in the entire, the entire place, which is um, very difficult. But yeah, but I've kind of caught up with the news and it's interesting now seeing, especially with the Assassin's Creed stuff, seeing fans react. And uh, something I've seen come out of it is um, there's now a kind of Discord group and a hashtag I've seen going around of like Assassin's Creed sisterhood. 
and kind of female fans of Assassin's Creed kind of voicing there and it's kind of saying you know yes we love these games but voicing their annoyance at these kind of female characters that they feel haven't you know been able to to shine or haven't been able to give the recognition and i thought that's been quite interesting to see this kind of a kind of i don't know if i'd call it a backlash but this kind of fans repositioning themselves to the games mm. which is very interesting yeah i mean i just i think the same as holly really i didn't i didn't watch it live or you know in the same way of thinking you know i don't i don't really want to in, be engaging with this right now even though actually the sort of the stuff that i'm most interested in the, the work that i do research wise is all about kind of specifically these sorts of events these sort of marketing and this kind of hype and the way that they these developers are trying to sell their games um especially obviously historical games uh, like I've, I've done in my work on rockstar and it just yeah it just felt like i it, it's annoying because I have literally spent most of the summer um, playing for the first time Odyssey and, or and I've just started Origins because through the PhD, I just had no time. I had absolutely no time to be focusing on any of these games and especially the way that Odyssey has completely drained all of my time because, you know, I want to do everything. But it's it's made it this kind of weird bit bittersweet thing now because, you know, before this happened and, what you know, I was like really, really deep into this game as Cassandra. Um, and now hearing all of this stuff come out and hearing the way that she was supposed to be kind of the focal point and, and all of this, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, I haven't really sort of figured out how to sort of deal with it on a sort of professional and personal level yet, other than the fact that I just, I've, I've had to kind of keep a bit of a distance for my own, just for myself, um, which is, is, is really, it's a really odd thing to kind of deal with, um, I guess. Um, I, I, you know, it's interesting, Bob, you brought up this, the whole, the channel's involvement with these games and everything. And my experience in teaching students of video games is that so many students wouldn't necessarily, who take those classes, who wouldn't necessarily see themselves as like video game fans are Assassin's Creed fans. And, and the extent to which, of course, these massive corporations, you don't know what's going on, but if you just sit down and play the game, and I think of I think of Ubisoft and that rapper they've had for years of this game was built by a diverse group, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay, they seem conscientious, and now I'm going to play my game. And, and like you know, <laughs> you're not going to be thinking about <laughs> these kinds of um, these interactions. But the Odyssey one is really interesting because you know I I picked Cassandra when I got the game, but it was kind of an online joke. Was I forget the I forget the male protagonist's name, but oh, he's bad. Pick Cassandra. But I remember Alexios, playing. Like, is that right? Yeah, and I don't know. You know, in these massive games with narrative structures and everything, Cassandra does. She's better for a reason. Like, it, so, so when that news kind of broke, that yeah, well, it was it was supposed to be her game, and they kind of crafted this guy on. It's like, yeah, that brings a weird extra dimension. And oh god, this is an awful thing to say. I, I feel like maybe gaming culture as a whole, like Gamergate, should have punctured this. But I think some people have this idea that gaming culture is different in some way in these very kind of antiquated ideas about jocks versus video game fans or whatever. And I was in a meeting a year ago with someone I obviously won't name who was trying to explain video games to someone who doesn't understand them. This person themselves didn't understand them because he said the issue was diversity and stuff in a college esports environment of making sure we want to create a welcoming environment for people. And this person said, oh, well, you know, uh, basically the males play consoles and the females play mobile games, you know, which is this kind of canard, right? It's this thing going back, um, which is, you know, which is nonsense. Um, and so in the same way, if you read into the details of the Ubisoft stuff, the harassments on this continuum 
that on one end is just, you know, powerful men being real. I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't swear in the podcast for Apple podcast reasons, but, you know, unpleasant people in a work environment or a work party, you know, being inappropriate. And so it's kind of, hopefully some people will be exposed to like how that works, you know, like there isn't a thick dividing line between the two, but I don't know. It makes me sad because I feel like this is just, Gamergate was this horrible moment, well, ongoing in some ways, but um, I know there's more disappointment to come. You know, these <laughs> these massive companies are not yeah. magically going to behave beautifully going forward. Yeah, and, uh, you know, some of this news, uh, like you would mentioned, John, is still ongoing, um, is still updating. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, Ashraf Ishmael, uh, who was the creator director from a lot of the recent Assassin's Creed titles, uh, he was only uh, dismissed last week, so... This is still very fresh, still ongoing, and I'm sure we're going to learn more. And, I mean, I think, obviously, you feel bad for uh, the victims of this. You also, uh, of course, you know, having been uh, in organizations where this stuff has gone on myself, you feel bad for the other people who are there who didn't have anything to do with it. And, you know, of course, when you're talking about one of these huge games, it's uh, thousands of people who work on it who... Uh, give up a lot of their lives to publish these games and now that kind of work is being um, put through the mud because of the actions of uh, very key people in the organization but not necessarily everybody uh, in the organization even though uh, it does it does seem disturbingly uh, the case that this was a very pervasive and global scale of harassment right it's not just something that's going on in France, not just something that's going on in Quebec, it's just about everywhere uh, in Ubisoft's organization. And really, really disturbing to see it uh, being kind of obfuscated by uh, the HR department, uh, which in some cases had very close relationship to the key people who were committing the abuse and harassment. So yeah, it's uh, a powerful warning, not just for gaming the gaming industry but then also anybody who's in a large organization uh like this so okay well but if you compare it sorry like if, you know i think ubisoft and riot become kind of interesting mm. i wouldn't even say contrast because you know riot is like the problem organization i feel sometimes you know yeah. the way that people talk about well, riot can be and they're working on it by stuff and they are working on it and i guess riot was this cartoonish version of it but it's the same it's the same thing because it's just this culture of it. And again, yeah, the larger organization, you're more, you know, I've, we've, I'm sure, well, I'm sure we've all witnessed it. I've certainly witnessed it where you're like, why isn't that guy being moved on or fired or something? Cause he just, my female colleagues won't be in a room alone with him, but yeah, you know, yet he still works here. You know, that happens. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I, I just, I hate how, I don't quite know how to put this into words because obviously I'm not trying to make it, at all, at all sort of try and not horrific what's been going on but I, I hate how it's my my sort of immediate reaction whenever you know I just just be just doom scrolling on Twitter waiting for kind of news that when things coming out really and just reading all these awful, awful things and just like the bravery of people to say it but simultaneously being shocked and not shocked like to com completely you know yes game gamergate the specter of Gamergate looms over everything and, and is still ongoing and, you know, it has never really been resolved and, you know, whether it ever will be, I don't know. But 
it's just not surprising that these things are still happening, even though they are awful and there's like they shouldn't be happening, you know, in any any um any situation, let alone a professional situation. And yet you see, oh, oh, there's another story. This is and it's at what point, like I don't know, I don't know whether just how do you deal with all of this coming out? I mean, let alone the people who are either working there or going through this themselves, dealing with this. It's, yeah, this is kind of weird um, double feeling of it being, yeah, awful. And yet you're just going, oh, well, it's not, it's not surprising these things are happening because this is a cultural thing. And, you know, we've had all these big exposes of sort of labor conditions for so many studios in the last couple of years. And it's, it's just this, there are, there are just levels of really problematic things going on and this is just one of them you know yeah and i I know you'd mentioned this before esther but i I think uh in a disturbing way this kind of adds ammunition to your research project regarding the influence of marketing departments um you know i don't think uh particularly scholars would have much of an issue with that kind of focus, but now anybody from the outside looking in uh, after this type of news and after seeing what kind of influence the marketing department had at just Ubisoft, um, it's very difficult to criticize, you know, looking at uh, marketing as a really key point of not just historical games, but any type of games um, to see the kind of influence they had uh, over how the Assassin's Creed games were being developed uh, is disturbing and it's also fascinating because i think you know traditionally and you know as you've written about you know we kind of separate the development side from the marketing side we see them as totally different departments but here at ubisoft at the very least you see that they are very closely intertwined yeah and it's one of the because because for for a lot of studios and and especially i guess in, in a lot of the work that i've done you don't really you don't really know you know there is a marketing department and you know there is the development side and yeah that is the kind of traditional view but you don't really know who is kind of having having the input so to have this kind of concrete like you know more of a fleshed out idea of, of what is happening who is making these decisions and what is driving those decisions is you know it's yeah from an academic point of view it's really interesting but it's just bleak it's really really yeah. bleak um, especially when when this this is the outcome and you know as you know, obviously, firmly put myself on Team Cassandra too. But I just, how can you think that marketing like a character like Alexios? I know I like really glibly tweeted about this. Like, imagine choosing to play as Alexios <laughs> over Cassandra, and like thinking, thinking some somebody, you know, one of these, you know, one of these people at Ubisoft go, you know, who who were all about has to be a man. You know, the hero has to be a man. Like, okay, but does it have to be that man? You know, like. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. The mind boggles. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, let's briefly discuss Ubisoft's news, um, keeping in mind uh, the news of this scandal, of course. Uh, From this event, uh, which, of course, at the event they did mention uh, the scandal or the news about sexual harassment, etc., they did talk about games. Uh, They discussed a bit more about AC Valhalla, uh, and uh, several journalists in particular got uh, some time to play an extended portion of the game. I think uh, they said about three hours or so. At least that's what I saw from several websites. Uh, and the response so far seems a little bit tepid. A lot of the writers are a little bit worried that uh, the game is leaning a little bit too heavily on the mechanics that have already been explored in AC Origins and AC Odyssey. 
uh, and they were hoping that the game tries something a bit new. There's a lot more news about uh, the game's settlement system, uh, which kind of builds on the RPG mechanics. So you've got NPCs, other characters in the game uh, that are going to live in a settlement that you help build up. And I guess that's kind of part and parcel of modern gaming, where uh, we have to recreate the real world uh, in our games by building up uh, make-believe settlements, etc., I don't really get into that stuff myself, but you know, maybe maybe people are excited about it. Um, and then finally, with regards to AC Valhalla, we've gotten news that um, <clears throat> one of the first DLC for this game uh, will focus on the story of Beowulf. Uh, so you can kind of see from very early on, like with a lot of other uh, recent AC games, that not only are they kind of focusing on one particular historical moment, one particular historical time period, they're also kind of optioning off uh, for DLC uh, myths and other um, kind of narratives uh, related to that time period. Uh, and you saw this with Origins, where you had DLC related to Egyptian gods. Uh, with Odyssey, you had DLC related to the myth of Atlantis, uh, and the same thing is going on here. Uh, with Valhalla. So uh, I'll turn to the panel. Uh, are we, in the light of all of this news, are we feeling enthusiastic about Valhalla? What do we think about their approach to this subject this time period? I don't know how other people feel, but I sometimes get a sense when like a big historical video game comes out like this, a part of me slightly dreads it because I know if I play it, I'm going to have to think about it. <laughs> like I can't just switch off and play it because I ended up having to review Odyssey, um, which as, as you're playing it at the moment, I had to review it and I was given, I think like four days, four or five oh, no. days. Oh, yeah, so oh, just wow. totally ruin all experience of it. So I, hopefully I'm going to, I'm going to not have to review this one, but possibly still <laughs> play it um, and maybe enjoy it on, on some level. Um, but I think it's, I think a part of me just in a kind of really kind of like, I've been there kind of, you know, way is a, cause I grew up in the Northeast of England. It's, it might be set around where I grew up and growing up in the Northeast of England, you will learn about the Vikings and you will learn about Bede, St. Bede, <laughs> and every part of my educational system. So I've kind of, I'm hoping to get Bede and Creed is my like, hashtag <laughs> that I'm pushing for. And I had someone kind of say, I had someone respond to me going, oh, well, Bede was in, you know, so and so a date and this is set in so and so a date i'm like you fight the pope in these games they can make they can fit bead in <laughs> they, know, yeah. they can make this work for me <laughs> um but the thing i found really interesting is that my dad has really gotten into assassin's creed games and he wasn't necessarily a big video game player but he had a knee operation he, so we got him a playstation and he got really really into assassin's creed because he likes these big open world rpgs and um i kind of sent him a bunch of the stuff that had come out and he kind of, he was excited for it, but he made a point, which I thought was was really interesting where, because I think they're bringing in or they've, they're they having some kind of a like, almost like fatality system, a bit like Mortal Kombat where, you, mm -hmm. you know, you see the arrow go in and there's blood and, oh, you know, the, see the bones breaking and stuff like that. And you can turn it off, um, which then insinuates that you, you it starts on, like you have to actively switch it off. Probably um, so, yeah. And, and he said, and he kind of said, he was like, I don't want that. Like, I'm not playing these games. Like that puts, that actively puts me off. And, and I kind of was thinking along the same lines. I was like, yeah, is anybody like, why, why, why have that? Like what, what, it, it, who is playing these games for that? And I just thought, mm -hmm. yeah. So I thought that was a, 
you know, and they're kind of like really pushing, you know, this kind of brutality of the Vikings. And then they're also trying to balance it with, oh, settlements. So they're not all just, you know, pillaging. There is some <laughs> raising cattle and things like that. And it's a, and it made me laugh as well when they had the, um, sorry, I'll stop in a second. They had the, um, the uh, trailer where they kind of really showed the English king. And I'm going to be really bad and not remember which king it is. Um, and, but it was very much a kind of like, oh, here's the evil English king sitting behind his, you know, scare on a scary throne. And then afterwards they were like, ah, but it's not quite as black and white as that. And I was like, but you made it that <laughs> trailer. You can't make a trailer like that and say, but that's not all there is. It's like, that's, what, a, what a bizarre, yeah. But anyway, that was my kind of a many, many layered reaction. Like, to like a lot of history game developers, they like to have their cake. Yeah. Too. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh no, not, you know, history isn't just about villains and heroes, but here are our villains and heroes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the, the one I, yeah, I've had a really interesting, I guess, interesting is a weird word for it, relationship with the Assassin's Creed games, because I sort of a couple of years ago, I think Syndicate was the last one that I played for a long time because I just kind of, I was like, oh, right, I've climbed to Big Ben now. What, what, am, I, what am I doing? Uh, you know, I just, so the introduction of these RPG elements in Odyssey was actually really like, I was like, oh, okay, right, this is like pulled me back in now. You know, I'm, I'm kind of here for it. Um, but what I really liked actually about the trailer and what sort of made me think, oh, right, yeah, I might, you know, really be interested in this game before everything happened is was this way of you know I, I think it's like the king's narration about how the vikings are you know super bloodthirsty and they're terrible but like the kind of the the visual is yeah is the settlements so it's them with their families or with the kids and it is literally playing on popular perceptions of what vikings are and oh well maybe maybe they're not you know but of course obviously you know it's it's one of these massive historical games it's it, it isn't going to be necessarily as nuanced as the trailer would lead you to believe that it, that it will be um but yeah that's sort of i was like okay that's interesting but you know these games have always had um they've always had a level of like understanding or being like this kind of self-conscious or self-aware of this sort of thing but yeah it's it's whether that will actually deliver anything beyond them just putting that on top of what they've already done in building on stuff like origins and odyssey anyway and actually it's just something they thought oh yeah we can do this as well we can just put this layer of self-consciousness on top no um yeah yeah and so much of the you know what you could call the historicity that they're striving for has to meet the audience expectations so you know if you're talking about vikings you need berserkers dual wielding axes etc you need to have you know like holly mentioned these mortal combat-esque fatalities to <laughs> appease video game players um and then, you know, maybe if you can kind of sprinkle in uh, historical detail, semi-accurate historical detail, you can do that as kind of a, a tertiary objective. But, you know, meeting kind of the uh, expectations of popular historical imagination is front and center, meeting the expectations of video games, uh, players, front and center, and then underneath that is kind of the historical window dressing. So I think it fits in line with... What they've done recently, Origins and Odyssey, had these same sort of issues. And they have the, um, uh, you know, you can play as a male or female protagonist that they did in Odyssey, which obviously now we know has a kind of much more complicated development story. But it kind of brings into question something which I found in Odyssey, which is like, I can't, I couldn't, I, I can't tell if this is just ignoring gender history 
in effect, or whether it's in a way almost liberating because these games are a power fantasy. So is, is, is it liberating in a way to not have to worry? You know, there's so much of these games that isn't that. I think I'd be slightly annoyed if I was playing as Cassandra and then someone stopped me from coming in a certain place because I chose to play as Cassandra. You know, is that what I'm playing this game for? And so I've never quite settled in my head of whether it is just a kind of, of whether it, gender doesn't matter to the to to the protagonist how the protagonist explores the world that they've created um or whether in a way that's quite nice <laughs> it's quite nice <laughs> kind of just to have to just to be able to put that to one side but yeah i have i have lots of complicated feelings and argue with myself about those two different aspects quite a lot i think there's a there's been a trend going on for a few years now and I think strategy games are going to lead in the line here of an understanding, and I think it's mostly implicit as opposed to something anybody tried to do, of that history is about narrative and it kind of depends who's telling the narrative and everything else. And, you know, I've been playing a bunch of Old World recently in Early Access, which 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 kind of embraces this. Um, Total War Troy, which is really building off Total War Three Kingdoms, is like, no, let's include fun interactions, you know, the Crusader King 2 style that these people are characters kind of thing. And I think that's all kinds kind of interesting. And I'm trying to work on the Ghost of Tsushima episode right now. And it's just kind of a massive challenge because um, it's just really hard. <laughs> and the sense that I think <laughs> that I think that I could read, uh, you know, something written about that game and go, I disagree with that completely, but you have a great point. And it's really frustrating because what am I going to say now um, about it? Uh, on the other end of it, um, I think Holly's point with the violence is really good in that um, I remember being a boy and my father seeing me play Mortal Kombat on the Super Nintendo and he took it away. It was this big moment in my childhood that um, <laughs> like, you know, I was allowed to play Mortal Kombat. <laughs> and um, I don't know, it's weird. Some people, including people who work in the industry, are still in, in the thrall of this idea of what men want. Not even what men want, but kind of what boys want, I think. And it's not actually clear that boys do want that anymore. Um, and anyway, even if they did, so what? Like, you know, like, you know, and if you buy Mortal Kombat, if you buy Mortal Kombat 11, obviously you want fatalities. That's clear, I guess. I'm not, I'm assuming. I'm not a Mortal Kombat fan. But um, we have this vestigial understanding of the, you know, there's, a, we're not, com this going to get really super preachy historian now. We're not coming to terms at all with the fact that games have a pretty significant history now in terms of how we tell stories and the imagery that we use and the visual languages that we become used to and the tropes that we have. And, you know, obviously a lot of work's happened. I think our existence is evidence of this. A lot of work has happened in the last few years, but it's hard. I mean, I think to someone younger than me, the Xbox 360 is a classic console. It's very hard for me personally to deal with, but also to start thinking about how do we kind of engage with that? Um, and, and it's, it's like, that's why Holly's point of the violence was so good, because I'm at that point now, too. Where in some games, the violence is part of the point and part of the narrative. In The Last of Us 2, however you might feel about it, the they're deliberately depicting violence that way. The Last of Us 2 wants you to hate it. It's a really fascinating game. Um, but yeah, in like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't need finishing moves, personally. If anything, it's just, you know, on a purely practical level, I'm, I'm probably just going to get annoyed that it's slowing down my <laughs> my flakes i'm having to watch this you know back break for the you know hundredth yeah. time or so it just it's it seems like very much kind of like um just think of a bunch of stuff from games and just throw it at the wall yeah and see yeah. what sticks and yeah. then and yeah it's a it's a it's an odd choice yeah that kind of the finishing move type thing it's it's a vestige of something like the fallout series or 
even Skyrim, you know, yeah, it's kind of giving motion. you this, yeah. yeah, this kind of cool cinematic moment. Yeah. And it's, and it's kind exactly. of like, oh, but no, that's not how <laughs> we're going to be playing these games for like a hundred hours. I'm not going to want to see the same thing over <laughs> yeah. and over again. Oh, well, um, Holly, I hope you, you, if you do get assigned this game, I hope you don't have to play it within four days. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, that was pretty would be brutal. miserable. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> another, I, oh, go ahead, John. Oh, sorry. I was, I also wonder, um, I wonder looking forward how we look back on, I mean, is, is Valhalla going to be kind of the third in the trilogy? Is are we going to think of it as Origins, Odyssey, Valhalla as a bag together? Because I think Origins is already a super interesting game to me just for, sitting down to write the history of games of the last 10 years. Like Origins is interesting because they changed the mechanics, but they chose Egypt, which is arguably, you know, massively oversaturated in historical study in the West, but not really in the last 15 years and not not in not in the media space, not in video games. I'm just curious to how that's all going to work. So I because it all it almost already feels like Origins Valhalla, or sorry, Origins Odyssey and Valhalla have these specific roles they're playing in our head of this trilogy, and Valhalla hasn't even come out yet. Um, and so I, yeah. I just think that's kind of interesting um, where they go after that. It's kind of very much like it's the mythic free, you know. It's got all yeah. your, it's got all your favorite myths in there, or your favorite, <laughs> which I guess makes sense because I guess kind of the point of wherever the actual plot of the games is now, it's all about it's like the myth making of the assassins mm-hmm. and of all of this, and so they're blending in. And um, I remember uh interviewing uh the creative director for origins um and them kind of saying that actually going from victorian london where you're, you're kind of we have lots and lots of images of what this looked like and we have lot you know we have lots and lots of historiography and all of this around it and then you know the further back you get it starts to get a bit more vague or it starts you know there's still lots and lots of stuff about it but there's a bit more creative license um as a designer i guess and mm-hmm. and they've obviously really found a lot of freedom in that um and yeah and obviously on top of that they're just mixing in kind of uh the best hits of the uh of the myths you might know um yeah. and yeah and i I, I kind of like that because i think you know these of you know accuracy and whatever these games aren't obviously accurate so why not why not have fun and also these these elements these kind of stories are are important parts of the culture of these places or they're important parts of that and the kind of society and culture of the places don't really get explored in the games because you're you know you might you might see a statue but you're kind of clambering over it you're not really learning about where it came from unless you're kind of reading in a codex or something like that so maybe kind of bringing in these myths as, as these playable things rather than just texts or rather than just bits in a menu is a way to explore that a bit more i don't know mm. i mean it makes it more complicated for me um to think of the culture of harassment that, that has been that has, I don't know if emerged or has been revealed to us. Um, I think back to, you know, we did an episode on Far Cry Primal a couple of years ago with uh, Dr. Andrew Bird and Dr. Brenna Reinhardt Bird, who, you know, they brought in like, hey, we want you guys to construct a plausible, you know, pre, uh, you know, uh, uh, pro, I forget God, proto-Anglo language, not Anglo, proto-something language, I forget now, but, um, you know, what people would have been Proto-Indo-European language. Thank you very much, proto you know, and they did that. And, and, and Andrew and Brenna, they were gushing, they went up to, I think it was Montreal, and they were and they had such a great experience. And and Far Cry Primal is a weird game. Like, why <laughs> did really they make is. that game? Like, it's <laughs> such a strange, like, let's make this decision and take hundreds of our people and a lot of our money and make this game. And it's, we'll put Far Cry on it so people will buy it, but still. And so it's just kind of, you, you know, it obviously doesn't make the cultural harassment worse. It's just like, 
again, maybe it's valuable for people to be thinking like you can't disentangle these things that just being an organization with at least some people who are interesting and pushing ideas also has this other thing going on. And in some cases, it's the same people doing both of those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you think too about, um, you know, Ubisoft was the first game company to uh, have a uh, black female protagonist for a game uh, with AC Liberation. They've also had many black protagonists uh, in their games, and they kind of rest their hats on those kind of uh, inclusions. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, these awful things are going on behind the scenes. And so, yeah, you kind of wonder how much uh, stuff exists despite people yeah. rather than because of people. Yes. It's a, yeah, it's an incredibly complicated, yeah. It's hard to know. Yeah. I find it really difficult because, like, literally, one of my, one of my very favorite games is Beyond Good and Evil which is Ubisoft, um, and was like this incredibly formative game for me. How, you know, I, I had it, my first experience of it was on like a demo disc for like the PS2, I think. And I remember playing the one level like over and over again and just being absolutely obsessed with the fact that you could be this like female photojournalist. And it was, this was your job and this was the game. And like, I don't even know how many times I've completed that game and absolutely love it. And it's like, how how did that exist? Yeah. Like back then, like 2003, if we're still dealing with this stuff now, or this stuff is, you know, now coming to the surface, it's, yeah, I, yeah. Well, they they keep threatening to release a, a sequel to that game. I don't know if it's actually going to happen, but. Uh... <laughs> I, I hope, I hope. I, I remember being really, really excited initially, um, and they released like this sort of trailer thing, like a cinematic yeah. sort of thing, like years and years ago, and thinking, oh yeah, and then the Looks more incredible. and more, yeah, the more and more that came out was like, no, please, please never. never <laughs> well, like, they're going to they're gonna have to include bloody camera finishers now. So it's, <laughs> it's a whole process. Maybe they just want to make a Beyond Good and Evil film. But it could yeah. be like that Final Fantasy film with Alec Baldwin in it, which I can't remember. <laughs> 20 years ago. Showed my uh, age now. Spirits Within. <laughs> yes, I saw that in the cinema. Yeah. All right, well, uh, let's move from... AC Valhalla, which could be kind of read as a historical allegory for Brexit, and turn to uh, the latest Watch Dogs title, uh, which is uh, going apparently to take place in a near future version of post-Brexit London. Uh, and this game, I think, is interesting, not necessarily because it relates to uh, history, uh, but instead the ways in which it is kind of playing upon 20th century British history, uh, indirectly uh, through things like CCTV, uh, through Britain's long history with counter-espionage, uh, Britain's long history with dystopian fiction uh, against uh, the backdrop of authoritarian surveillance states. Um, so I think this is a title that I think is is interesting for those reasons. And I don't know what you all think of this, but I feel like the Watchdog series is one that it's a it's a kind of a weird lineage, partly because it had a very famous uh, trailer for the first game that got everybody very excited. The resulting game wasn't nearly as good as the trailer, uh, but I think it's a, a series that is actually kind of grown in strength, especially with Watch Dogs 2, and I'm very eager to see what they do with Watch Dogs Legion, uh, particularly given the setting and then my own, of course, personal interest in the history of uh, surveillance and espionage in Britain. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about it. Yeah, it's a really weird series because the first one was just 
just not a great game you know had its iconic hat and mm-hmm. this the you know world's most boring protagonist and and then they kind of <laughs> came out the second one and the second one is a really interesting game yeah and again where you're just like wow they really you know they really kind of pulled it out the bag on this one and yeah and this one is this one's been really interesting kind of seeing especially someone living in london and going through the dystopian process of brexit and <laughs> all of that it's, you know and so it is it is interesting i haven't seen much about it because a part of me a part, a part of me is because ubisoft are kind of one of the many developers where they're kind of like they they love using politics but they love denying that they're using them absolutely um, that's like their big thing, you know, how, how you, you can look at a game like this watchdogs game or any of this and, and, and go, but it's not political, um, <laughs> is, is comical. Um, and so a part of me is interested and a part of me is kind of like, I don't know if I trust them with certain aspects or I'm kind of, but I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm being too sensitive and, and, and it's, it's just hitting a nerve or something. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see it. Um, I'm wonder, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm wonder, I'm wondering if there's going to be a, if there's going to be a bit of like, what about ism or kind of mm-hmm. both sides or, you know, kind <laughs> yeah. of, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm think, interested, but hesitant. Yeah. I, and I think the perspective of the developers matters a lot here. Um, you know, you think about Ubisoft, they have, uh, as a French company, they have a very long history of adapting histories of other people, and not necessarily of France or French colonies, etc. Um, and I think it's interesting, they are adapting, you know, kind of late 20th century, early 21st century British history for this game, uh, for Watch Dogs. Um, and I think that you know, it, it fits in with their habit of adapting other countries rather than their own. But also, I think, given their perspective, they're probably leaning towards a an anti-Brexit perspective because of their origin point. So I wonder if there is going to be any both sides-isms. I, I would imagine that most of the development team is probably very anti-Brexit. Mm. Um, but it's difficult to know without having yeah. played the game. Because, I mean, it's that difficult. It's the it's a ridiculous thing now where again of like the marketing stuff where people don't want to put their flag anywhere they don't want to be seen to be actually making a statement yes. or actually making yes. a decision because then what happens if we isolate these or we you know what happens if yes. we anger that and and it just becomes you know like with um i had a really interesting conversation recently with chris kempshaw um first world war historian and he was talking about playing call of duty world war Two, and just this really awful bit in it where it kind of uses the aesthetics and what is clearly a concentration camp in Auschwitz, but they won't call it a concentration camp. They call it a POW camp and they won't mm-hmm. acknowledge. And it's very much a kind of clear sign of maybe not wanting to anger or not wanting to address. And it's like, you can't, yeah. So a part of me is wow. is kind of wondering, I hope, I, I hope that it's, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't expect these big companies to create really radical you know political satire or anything like that that's not what they're going to do really it's but i i yeah i'm interested to see yeah i'm just interested to see it i think i think it will be one i'll watch someone else play rather than play myself (laughs) (laughs) i think it's like sorry sorry, go ahead no no, carry on it's fine Uh, i was just sorry got off you know holly's comments i can think about scale and everything else like you know the british french relationship can be interesting i think 
you're rowing right now, I think, or your government is, I think, with the French, or maybe that's already over. I don't much. Who knows? I feel um, we're rowing with everyone. That's just what we're doing. <laughs> <Yeah. again. laughs> and it's just <laughs> so I don't I don't know if they'll go for like you know the white van man that the Economist spent like two years <laughs> writing about, or um, I don't know if there's like a Boris Johnson analog in the game. But then while Holly was speaking, I just thought of like of of itch um, itch.io, uh, you know, purveyor of fine indie games, other things, and like. Um, that bundle they did a few weeks ago for Black Lives Matter was kind of an awesome way to introduce people to like, you know, insane, crazy things are happening on itch. Um, and so if you want to see like punk pasted together, I did this in two days games or games took a lot longer, but a very specific aggressive political positions or assertive political positions, I should say, um, you should totally go to itch. And so how, how the heck does that translate into a large corporation anyway? Not mm. to be skeptical or say mm. that, it's impossible, but I think like we probably Ian goes to Georgia Tech, you know, is a great Twitter follow follower, and the grumpier he gets, the better he is, and he's a very grumpy for the last two months. <laughs> and so, you know, somebody earlier on made a point about like you know, like Odyssey taking so long, and Bogost always complains that games games are work effectively. He's not complaining; he's just stating. Um. So, what the heck does Watch Dogs Three even do? And then we have this additional <clears throat> problem of the aesthetic of playing of like, is it good or not? So that you know, like you just like Watch Dogs series in particular. We have no idea what to expect. So will we get a really awesome, fun game that's kind of troubling and weird? A game that's kind of making really interesting points despite Ubisoft's marketing protestations, protestations to the contrary, but it's kind of bad. I I don't know. For us, it kind of doesn't matter. We can just slog through something if it's interesting and talk about it. But then the impact it would have would, would be affected by that. Yeah, I mean, I literally, as, as we've been having this conversation, it's been like pinging in my brain more and more only because I've only just been, been playing it. I've been literally just catching up on all these kind of historical in some way games that I've missed over the last few years, but I've been playing We Happy Few mm. recently. And, you know, um, Bob, when you were describing kind of like what the new um, Watch Dogs is supposed to be, it was kind of like pinging in my brain like this, this game that had that I find really really interesting and I remember when it was it was a kickstart game and it's similarly made by a kind of a Canadian company about sort of Britain and British history is set in the kind of 1960s in this sort of I guess future retro sort of psychedelic 1960s but is you know it, as in as much as it has a narrative and this is one of the issues with the game it, it's kind of about dealing with collective memory of the second world war mm-hmm. um, and, and it being this sort of alternate history in which um, you know, the Nazi Germany won the war and there was this very shameful episode in the history of um, Wellington Wells, this kind of English countryside, typical, you know, very English countryside, idyllic on the surface, but dystopic underneath. And there being this this drug that is created to make people forget that they you know, they gave their kids to the Nazis, essentially, as a way of, of as hostages and they've never seen them again. And yeah, this, I think, and I, I really enjoyed the... The historical narrative aspect of it but I think this is a game that just like it didn't know what it wanted to be it kind mm-hmm. of has all these sandbox survival horror elements on the one hand and then this really really super interesting concept that like I felt like I'd never sort of really experienced before and I thought was really interesting I wanted them to dig deeper into that into that concept where you have these like ruined keep calm and carry on posters on the wall or you've got all these like iconographies of like dad's army and the home front mm-hmm. and all this but it never really kind of digs into that as much as it wants you to go and find like a million, I don't know, bottles. Yeah, and just make all these things. And I, I'm not 
it's not that I'm not good at those games necessarily. I just, I have no interest in the time and the stress that it places on my brain. Like having to make sure I have all of these things that I can then make a, I don't know, a medication with or something. So yeah, I think it's interesting that we, or maybe I often, when I think of historical games, will think of maybe American historical games or these European historical games. And it seems that, I mean, I know there is a legacy of games about sort of British history, but this was something different. And I'm wondering whether kind of this, this Watchdogs will be this kind of, will be that sort of what I wanted from that game maybe a bit more and having this kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously just hoping for way too much now and hoping for this kind of like cri- <laughs> cri- critical, political sort of... You are the kind of, of positive person. and I'm the negative kind of yeah, like... <laughs> I don't know, and, and I don't know why, because I'm always so negative. Like, well, I say always so negative. Whenever, you know, like you were saying earlier, when a historical game comes out, I'm like, oh, I kind of want to play it, <laughs> but I, I know I will not be able to turn my brain off and I'm going to write about it. And I just, I want something, I guess, that will will dig into these big things about like how British people, I mean, and I don't really count myself in this, but how British people think of themselves as a sort of a country. And like the, one of the, the taglines from like Be Happy Few is, you know, happy is the country that has no history or happy is the country that has no past. And this this just collective forgetting in order to be able to see ourselves as Great Britain and, you know, we won the war and all this. And I just, I want a game or I want something, I guess, that deals with that in a satisfactory way. This probably won't be it. Like, you know, I'm under no, <laughs> I'm under no illusions about that. But, it, you know, if it's going to try, uh, you know, we'll see. It might be interesting anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that's the thing, like, when you say, like, those games where they have, I don't know, a really interesting concept or it's kind of really digging into really interesting stuff and then the game gets in the way of you yeah. enjoying yeah. that concept. And it's kind of very much like, it's like, a, yeah, there's, it, the, the kind of concept and the story just becomes a veneer for mm-hmm. the same game we've played over and over again. And I think maybe one thing that I think Watchdogs might be interesting for is that at least the kind of actual like mechanics, nuts and bolts of the game lend itself better to the actual, maybe the story they're trying to tell. Yeah. Like it is like the surveillance and, you know, and all of that and the kind of, you know, controlling politics and narrative and stuff like that. At least that fits with, the, in, in some ways fits with yeah the concepts fit with the mechanics which often isn't the case in games like that so that maybe is kind of gets me a little bit more hopeful and then and then then I'm kind of worried they're gonna do a kind of like punkish veneer over you know a kind of vanilla bland cake kind of thing Um, well, it is interesting, you know, they've got this system in the new Watchdog game that they showed off at this Ubisoft event last month that uh, you take control of uh, any NPC in the game and that, you know, potentially anybody can be part of a resistance against this um, techno savvy authoritarian uh, surveillance state. So, um, you know, maybe it'll play like a preview of post Brexit uh britain who knows i don't know i mean at least we don't really have a tech savvy government in the fact that they're constantly losing Good. their passwords and can't control yeah yep. you know yep. so it's gonna yep. this can't communicate really important things about you know lockdowns or coronavirus or any things that you know we actually need to know about so you know we stay yeah. alive but if anything this might be like an aspirational game for them like, you know what? <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, well, they did innovate on eye exams, right? You just drive to a castle. And then <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's super <laughs> easy now. <laughs> uh, 
In addition to Watch Dogs and to Valhalla, we also learned about the new Far Cry game, Far Cry 6, uh, which will be out in the spring. Uh, this game focuses on a fictitious version of Cuba, where you play a character that is leading a guerrilla resistance to overthrow an authoritarian regime. And it fits right into Ubisoft's... Uh, portfolio i guess um and this game i think uh you know we've done far cry games in the past john mentioned far cry primal for instance uh this game i think might be interesting to consider with regards to modern perceptions of banana republics or perceptions of uh recent caribbean history uh modern caribbean history um and then mechanically i think it's interesting john i know you've played some of the far cry games uh this game is going to include a large capital city in which you're playing in. And so instead of running around in um, a jungle uh, or out in fields, for instance, you're going to be dealing more with tall buildings and verticality. So I don't know. It could be, could be compelling. Could be interesting too. If you think about, um, I actually don't know how the audiences break down these games. I'm assuming the United States is a big market. For these audiences, Cuba is still a thing in the American imagination. Um, and it's distorted all over the place. It's distorted. So I'm kind of intrigued to see that. You know, I took yeah. to a colleague yesterday. He's an expert. He's an expert in Amer- North American history, but particularly um, Latin American experiences. And um, he's just he's writing about wet foot, dry foot, and the Mario, Mario, mm-hmm. and all these kind of things. And um, yeah, again, going back to Holly and Esther's point or Holly's point, but Ubisoft, um, we're not political. They include it. So then. What they choose to include, I, I I still think the gold standard for um, um for a production for a game design company representing other cultures is still the first few Resident Evil games and their representations of American cultures. I think everyone Absolutely. should do that. Um, just surreal, some would say, insane B movie. You know, Leon Kennedy in every film, so that's in every game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then lastly, from Ubisoft's event, uh, we also learned that the company has yet again rebooted their long-promised pirate game called Skull and Bones. Uh, now they are turning it into a live, persistent game world uh, with uh, quests and characters and storylines that are supposed to fit the model of Fortnite. So that sounds more like a threat than an announcement. <laughs> um, but I am curious to see what they do with it. I mean, I think they had planned something that was kind of first-person narrative, and then when... Um, Xbox and uh, their uh, Sea of Thieves game came up. Uh, they kind of changed it to that kind of model. And now it sounds like they want to create the next Fortnite with ships. So um, I don't I don't know what to make of that news, but <laughs> there it is. Uh, so let's turn to Xbox events. Uh, and so they had a showcase on July 23rd. Uh, and this had a lot of, you know, what you would expect to hear, news about Halo Infinite, uh, news about a new Forza game, uh, news about Psychonauts 2, uh, a whole list of games that are going to be optimized for the new Xbox. Um, but I thought uh, for us, I don't know if y'all are interested in talking about Halo, we can do that, but I thought this event was interesting because of what it portends for the future of gaming. Uh, There's a lot of news about uh, Xbox and their Game Pass, uh, which is a system that allows you to basically subscribe uh, to Xbox. You get a whole slew of not only upcoming Xbox titles uh, when you subscribe to the service, but also existing titles and then past Xbox titles, which can include uh, titles 
not just from uh, the Xbox One, but then Xbox 360 and going back to the original Xbox. And so my question to the panel is given this kind of move by a major hardware company uh, and then also software company, what do we think about Game Pass as kind of the future for historical game preservation? Uh, you know, instead of collecting old games, instead of collecting old consoles, you'll instead subscribe uh, to the service that allows you to go back through a huge catalog of games and replay them. What do we think about that idea? I mean, I think as a, as a as a player, I can see why it's enticing. But as someone studying, or if we, we are thinking about these broader kind of questions around preservation, it's it, you know it could be well, it probably is a complete nightmare. Especially if we, you know the whole conversation that's been ongoing about games as games as service, games as licenses. You know, you don't own it anymore. There's there's nothing to say that you can then. You know, you buy a Game Pass or you buy a, you know, um, digital download a game or any of this, and there's there's nothing to say that that couldn't just disappear at some point. Um, yeah, it's how how do we account for that? Um, and, the, and you know, these things in terms of if you're talking about general media preservation in general, games moves so much faster and in in ways that we just don't seem to be able to account for um, mm -hmm. a lot of you know, conversations I guess around preservation are still dealing with you know they're, they're dealing with con the contemporary but you know we're still talking about things in terms of happening sorry things that happened in terms of games decades ago and we're now only just kind of catching up with that let alone these things that are moving year on year if not month on month it's it's tough mm -hmm. And then, like you said, with games as services, games with persistent worlds, um, you know, does the game still exist after the servers are turned off? Mm. So, yeah, um, it's it's interesting. And, you know, I've done some research on looking at older historical games, digital games, uh, went to the Strong uh, Library last year uh, during the summer and you know, the effort to preserve physical games, you know, uh, floppy disk drives, uh, uh, things that are on zip drives, things that are on um, old CD-ROMs, that process is difficult, but at least you can still play the games. Whereas I think looking forward, it might be the case that given that everything's going digital, everything's going online, is staying persistent, it might be the case that we don't even have that kind of limited reassurance uh, going forward. Uh, so I, I don't know. I just think it's a, it's an interesting issue for, for us as, you know, scholars of play, scholars of games, uh, to think about, you know, how our work and our research could change going forward. Um, yeah. I mean, it's something that I've in a slightly different way, something that I've been dealing with anyway, sort of in, in my, the research that I've been doing because I'm looking at kind of digital, marketing and digital kind of um, materials that are not the game anyway, the amount of time, I mean, it's at least two or three times in the course of me just doing my PhD that the Rockstar website, for example, that I was using as kind of a key source underwent some kind of reformatting. And I would yeah. not only lose kind of, so the first time it happened, um, the, the Newswire section that I was, you know, I got loads of my sources for my PhD from in terms of how Rockstar's kind of communicating with, with their players it got completely reformatted and then I lost all the comments underneath. 
or, you know, I've lost, like there's link rot, there's, you know, polls have gone. And, and now I, I checked back the other day because I was getting some content there from for, for a module that I'm planning and it completely changed again. And I couldn't do the thing that I planned to do not a month ago in terms of, you know, a source analysis exercise. So even on a, you know, a really personal level, like in terms of digital materials that are not the games, this is hard enough and this is a moving target and the ephemeral nature of these things is something that, you know, media scholars have been dealing with for, for ages, but it's, it's so hard even when you're not trying to get the game itself, yeah. let alone the game in addition to everything mm -hmm. that comes with it. So much of it's already gone. I think this is why I'm kind of very thankful for the research that I do because my own research is I look at kind of like board games and and uh, analog games from like 1860s to 1960s. So I'm, it's very unlikely that they're going to change at this point. <laughs> it would be very strange. Um, but I do come across some stuff sometimes where I wonder if this is going to be a thing that you guys are going to have to deal with more where stuff will only exist in the archive of a company. It's probably you have this already. And, you know, you'll go to this company and go, oh, can I access your archive? And they're just like, no, yeah. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> and so, and, and then you're stuck. You can't, you know, there's no other way to get it. And, it, and you're locked out completely. Yeah. Um, and the thing, the thing I often think about is because um, with my PhD, I'm much more focused on play than the actual games themselves, is how the play of these games is getting preserved, how the actual player experience, how people feel, what they're doing, how they're interacting with these games is getting preserved, if it is, or how you can look mm -hmm. at it. That's what I often, uh, that's what I often think about because I spend a lot of my time just desperately looking for all history sources and letters of people born in 1900 and trying to piece together <laughs> play experiences and thinking about what people will be doing to kind of think, oh, well, how was people, how were people playing Sea of Thieves and things like that? Yeah. You know, with regards to your point, Holly, I think it's kind of interesting looking at Xbox and their recent history, particularly going back to the 360, because I could, th yeah, I can see if you could get their records, particularly with regards to something like game achievements that could give you, uh, you know, uh, maybe not for your time period, but, you know, for people doing similar work uh, for more recent titles, it could give them a real sense of, you know, how much of a game people mm -hmm. are playing, how they're interacting with it, et cetera. Um, but again, like you'd mentioned, you know, Trying getting those get records. That, yeah. yeah, it's really, it's probably impossible, honestly. And, you know, one thing I did want to briefly mention is that uh, with reference to the Strong Library, uh, there was news this summer uh, in which um, a lot of Nintendo's uh, corporate uh, information, their archives uh, were hacked into and a lot of the information about past and then Nintendo mm -hmm. titles development uh, was released online. And interestingly... Uh, the Strong Museum, which has some holdings of Nintendo ephemera, mostly not a bunch of uh, uh, development information, but kind of uh, marketing uh, stuff. Uh, they've remained largely silent on the release of those documents. And I think it's partly because of playing this political game of trying to get Nintendo to give them Mm. this information yeah. to give them the the archives yeah. uh, and maybe that kind of event for Nintendo might encourage them mm. to hand over the archives to somebody else to kind of keep them yeah. safe I don't know but I did yeah, kind Nintendo of I mention that. Uh, yeah very I remember once having to review like a really like you know, flash in the pan 3DS game and I had to sign an NDA like super thick mm -hmm. and being like, you can't mention the color of the curtains and like really specific <laughs> Nintendo are very, mm -hmm. have a very high hold over their content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It makes me, um, 
it makes me think just as someone who plays games, however, because growing up, I didn't have uh, PlayStation 4 was my first PlayStation and then 360 was my first Xbox. And before that, like it was mainly like Nintendo or um, handheld stuff. And so I kind of missed out on a lot of kind of key you know, stuff where people will reference, you know, Metal Gear Solid, Final Fantasy, like, you know, these really kind of key reference points I just had no concept of. And you can see why, you know, people are getting more and more interested, especially as players are kind of new players are coming through. They're like, well, what actually, you know, if you mention the original Metal Gear Solid or, you know, an early Final Fantasy game, how many young players have actually know those games or do they just know them as reference points for these newer games and actually having a game pass or something which means that you don't pirate games you know obviously come this is a company's way of kind of having control over their past content so people don't have to go and pirate they can come and you know you just subscribe and you can play it here i can definitely see the appeal of that because if you're like well all these past games are here you'll go well great because i never had a chance to play them as a kid yeah. you know I, I can totally see the appeal of that, especially as a way of try them trying to combat, you know, pirating and downloading yeah. and things like that. Yeah, and even an oldie like me, I have some of these old consoles, and but I don't have the technology. I don't have a CRTV anymore to plug them into. Right? So <laughs> yeah, it takes dedication. Uh, yeah, it takes really a lot of dedication and a lot of uh, storage space that I just don't have, particularly with two kids, and so. Um, you know, I think the convenience factor, even for somebody who's played these games before is really attractive and really interesting. I, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, part, part of me is a bit nihilistic, I suppose, in the sense that being no. in a story, no. <laughs> <laughs> be, be, uh, be, being a historian is, uh, I'm going to sketch out the best incomplete picture I can. And that is the, <laughs> that is the sadness I live with. And that is why my books take longer to write than they should, because it's just mostly emotionally grappling with the fact that I can't tell you exactly what the heck happened. Um, and, and, you know, you have this in the classroom sometimes with students, in particular when I teach samurai and things, there's a certain kind of um, student who really wants to tell me, you know, this is how such such a battle happened. I'm like, well, I mean, you know, maybe. Um, also, I, also, I don't care about that battle. But, um, you know, there is an interesting subculture of people who are, and you have all the various ways you can recreate this with, with tech, and there's such a hardware side to it, which is interesting, actually. And I've been reading about the history of computing a lot recently and this kind of divergence between hardware and software. Of course, you have that in video games as well. Um, but, like, do you have to play Super Mario Brothers 2 or the Japanese game, which the other game which it was based, on a CRT? Does that mean that I have to read Dickens by candlelight? You know, and in the same <laughs> I think back to secondary school and college, and I, I'll give the listeners an insight into how rocking John Harney's youth was. Um, my friends and I decided we would catch up on the classics over a year. And um, <laughs> you had these Penguin classics and Waterstones that were a pound a copy. You know, and I'd get Anna Karenina, and then I'd get, you know, uh, I'm trying, now I can't think of any classics, of course, because we're recording this podcast. Oliver but, you Twist. Know, thank you. Yeah. you know, exactly. I'd work through Dickens and all these things. And... Um, is there a way to do that for a young gamer now? And would they even want to, and won't they just play the inevitable Metal Gear Solid remake, Final Fantasy VII remake, and so on and so on? It's not the same thing. Do we want them to do that? And then at the same time, um, I, I think Europe is the same, but I know in the US, digital humanities has evolved from being something you put on your CV when you're begging for a job to, <laughs> to something that you still do that, but now it's actually becoming much more of a real thing. And I need to go back to it. I went to the Digital Library Foundation's um, national conference a couple of years ago, and it was awesome, and it was cool, and it was exciting. And there's some awesome archivists out there. Um, 
but I don't know how this all comes together because strong is awesome, but strong is kind of on its own at the moment. Yeah. Like Richard Garriott, this is going back years, Bob, when you and I were at Texas, I was once, I forget, I think I was helping serve drinks or something at that Globe Theater he made in his enormous, his backyard, which is like the size of the town I live in, in, in outside Austin, Texas. And they were going to do this whole, what is now strong, they were going to do that at Texas. And it just didn't happen. Yeah, I'm not sure why, and I'm not blaming you know. So, so yeah, I don't know where the next steps are for that archival state of games, even the academic structure side of it. Well, and so much, and so much like Holly has mentioned before, uh, so much relates to what relationship do you have with game publishers, game developers, and the companies behind them. Uh, That's that's critical. I wonder if in a weird way you're going to end up kind of in the future in the position I'm in now, where all of a sudden there's. this kind of the the kind of stuff that I look at wasn't really taken seriously by a lot of stuff that so wasn't really collected, but it was collected by private collectors and it was collected, you know, by, uh, you know, just individuals who are just really, or people who used to work within the industry. And now these people are getting older or they're dying and their collections pass too. And all of a sudden there's it just almost out of nowhere, like there's a huge abundance of material. And I wonder if I wonder if video games will get that point where you know you'll have a few, a couple of key people get to a point where they're like, you know what, I can't deal with this massive collection anymore. Here you go, and maybe yeah. Yeah. I wonder. That's, I wonder how much stuff there'll be in uh, people's lofts and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's been a big narrative for a podcast I listened to, uh, Giant Bomb. Um, their kind of lead uh, editor in chief, Jeff Gersman, is somebody who's been in the game industry for decades now, and he has a huge collection mm-hmm. of games, consoles, other ephemera in his house in storage bins. And he keeps threatening to just drive it off a cliff someday, <laughs> or a car drive off a cliff, or to try to find some place to donate it to. And Unfortunately, he's had the experience, and he lives in California. He's mm-hmm. had the experience with uh, the Video Game uh, History Foundation, etc., where they don't have the space to take his stuff. Uh, yeah. They would love to, but they just don't have the space. And I know the Strong is year on year looking mm-hmm. for money, looking for grants to expand their space because all of that stuff it's great to keep, but you know, like it, you said, yeah. uh, sometimes it's in it's impossible. Uh, for these libraries, even big libraries like the Strong, to hold all of this stuff. So, um, yeah, I guess yeah. I'm lucky in the fact that the stuff I look at is on cardboard, so you can kind of be like, yeah, it's ephemera, sure, <laughs> <laughs> stick it there, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, our, our little library here, it's it's a, it's a small liberal arts college library, so it was it's never been meant to be a research library or anything like that. Um, they're throwing out a bunch of books, and so I was in the basement the other day. And I figure everything up to 1955, I can count as a primary source now because I want to talk with American attitudes <laughs> about China. And I go back as far as 85, certainly 1990. This should totally, this should be in my office, I guess. And 55 to 85 is kind of lost. Um, and it's tough because a lot of those books actually tell you what happened when like Mao Zedong was put aside in 1959. Whereas the modern books, we just, we go straight to the argument, right? Um, and it's interesting to think about it and, and this use of space because one of the things librarians are doing and certainly in colleges in America are rethinking how the library can be an active part of the fabric of the community, the, the college community. And for some administrators, and I'm not talking about center now, but just this is, I've seen other places, certainly um, books aren't a part of that. Um, and so when books are under pressure, um, how do you, how do you say, Hey, we have this whole other collection of media stuff. And by the way, they'll need their own power banks and all these kinds kinds of things. Um, but I do, I think it's a great point about the the donation stuff because I used to work at DePaul in Chicago 
and they're just open to the city and people would walk in and they get amazing things donated. And they also get very strange people who want to donate things that they don't want. Um, and then I think, you know, it reminds me, I used to work with Lisa Siegel at DePaul. She's a historian of sex. And she, she for a while, for a couple of times, she went to this archive somewhere up in the Northeast because she was interested in scrimshaw, um, whalers and so on, um, scraping images and things into bones and stuff. And uh, she's an historian of sex. It turns out that these guys were, you know, they were very lonely while they were in sex. <laughs> and, and, but this archive was run by descendants of some guy, right? And so they were like, oh, no, 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 you've completely misunderstood <laughs> you know, our material. And so I'm like, so what would that look like, you know, 80 years from now? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Is there some odd person? Like, I can think of the various weird Hideo Kojima sub archives. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I think there's also the aspect of um, kind of adapting the legal practices of an archive to these different, you know, these different objects. So I remember I had a really weird experience where I went to Princeton to work from the Coatesen Children's Library because they had a bunch of board games I wanted to look at. And I went there and they obviously had, you know, the usual like, you know, sign this, sign this, you can't. And but unfortunately, all the all the legal kind of stuff they gave me, it's it's all related to books. It was all about books. And of course I wasn't looking at books. And so it was stuff like, oh, you can't uh, photograph more than a third of the book and stuff like that. And I was like, OK, how does this translate? Can I only photograph a third of the board? And like, kind of, you know, what's the and it ended up going this like huge back and forth. Like most of my time spent there was just trying to, you know, what's the what's the middle ground here and eventually they were just like oh it doesn't matter just take you know takes me a piece more kind of thing and um but it was for the every every aspect of the experience was catered to books and even though they had this you know this huge amazing collection of non-book material um and so and and yeah and it was just it was just really interesting that it was just it was just not a aspect ready to be that kind of legal aspect was just mm-hmm. a real issue all right, well, so that does it for Xbox and their event. And I'm just curious, out of all of this news uh, throughout the summer with not E3, is there anything that y'all are looking forward to? And I guess I'll, I'll turn to Holly first and ask, you know, uh, anything that has caught your eye, any games you're looking forward to playing? Are you planning on getting a new console? What's the story? Um, I mean, I'll probably get a new console because I can justify it as a work cost. Oh, <laughs> clever. I can be like, I like well, that. I have to. This is, you know, I give this thing as part of my work. Um, so, yes, uh, I was trying to think of games that I'm excited for. I'm sure they exist, but I'm really drawing a blank right now. <laughs> I'm totally drawing a blank. I was looking around my office trying to think. <laughs> I, I cannot think off the top of my head. Um, but, yeah, I, I will probably be getting new consoles. Um, yeah, is there one that you're leaning towards? Um, honestly, I, I, I have no idea. I'm kind of one of these people where like, you know, there'll be like numbers and gigabytes and stuff are flashing on the screen. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. (laughs) As long as it runs and I can play stuff I want to play and it, you know, the UI isn't totally impenetrable, Mm -hmm. then I'll give it a go. Um, so it's, it will probably just be with my flatmates, whichever one we decide (laughs) is, you know, is fine. Um, but yeah, I guess. I guess more and more I'm kind of leaning, I think especially having to like spend more time writing and working about these bigger games, I spend more and more of my personal time enjoying smaller games and kind of indie titles and things like that, just because, I don't know, that's just tends to be, I find some, I don't know, more interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
Esther, what about you? Are you are you planning to expense a new console to your new job? It seems, <laughs> seems per- perfectly reasonable. I mean, digital history, you've got to have yeah. all of the new consoles day one. I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to be like, should I, should I say this? I probably shouldn't say this. But no, like I, I do... This is the thing, like, I'm exactly the same as Holly in that I, I couldn't actually tell you a game specifically that I'm really excited about. You know, I had, I spent a lot of my teenage years playing Halo, but am I really going to go back to that? Probably, probably not. So I don't know. I And again, like, I don't really feel like I necessarily have this, like, console loyalty. Like, I had a PS1, a PS2, an Xbox 360, and then a PS, um, PS4. Um, and I have a PS3, but I'm like, oh, you know, and, and I just, yeah, I don't feel like I have the time to just sit there and yet yeah, compare, like what's best. Is it, and I, I feel like this is just like a, like a sort of, this is something you have to feel deeply in your core whether you're going to buy a, a PlayStation <laughs> or an Xbox. And I will probably- Wh- Whether you're going to force your university to buy well, a PlayStation or an Xbox. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think because I feel like, yeah, I can justify it as, as a work thing. And I will, I'm sure there will be some game at some point that I will need to buy. Um, we'll see how far that research budget will stretch. I, I'm very much, because, and because I've started this job and because, you know, this is this is a way that I think most of the humanities, like, you know, John, you were talking about this idea of digital humanities and especially history, like everyone understands that the digital is, is the way forward, like the digital, you know, it's like <laughs> thing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's how, and especially if I'm, I'm te- you know, I'm running a, a, a full module, a full double semester module on digital games and the practice of history this, this year in, in how many weeks? <laughs> Six weeks. Um, you, you know, we, how, how can we actually make sure that students have got the, the resources that they need? Like, we actually do mm-hmm. need to start having conversations about can they use PS4s, PS5s, Xboxes? You know, we can't expect them to all have one. Like, we, they need to be able to actually have these things at their disposal that the university is actually providing because otherwise, how else are they going to do the work that we're expecting of them? Um, so, yeah, as, as, a wor- as a work thing, you know, quote unquote work thing. I, I will be getting something. What that is, I have no idea. Um, for the time being, honestly, like honestly, I aside from playing all these games that I have missed over the last few years that are historical and that I will need to be teaching with or probably writing something about at some point, I have mostly just been on my Switch playing Animal Crossing as a yes. escape, <laughs> escape from everything else going on <laughs> in the last few months. And it's just that's yeah. I mean that is probably the most hours I've sunk into anything I've maybe honestly the last few months. Yeah. <laughs> I've had the weird thing at the moment where I've gone like, there's like two games that are holding my attention at the moment and they're so polar opposite. I find it really funny where I've gotten really into the remake of uh, Harvest Moon or Story of Seasons because of legal reasons, Friends of Mineral Town, um, which the original game was like one of my, it's like one of my all time favorite games, just fantastic and replaying the remake which is a very different game but still a fantastic game and then I'm playing Bloodborne for the first time <laughs> so just kind of really just pushing my brain to different areas with those just really hitting but I'm actually finding them really good in, they're similar in the way of kind of like uh, distractions from work stress and general world falling apart stress of Harvest Moon is this very much like you know this is my thesis on why blood dark souls likes and bloodborne and it's exactly the same as harvest moon um <laughs> in that you're kind of you're kind of doing this you're kind of going through this repetitive cycle and in a way you kind of like you you know 
going through a certain area in Bloodborne and kind of knowing exactly where the enemies are and getting the hit at the right time, to me, it's almost hitting exactly the same buttons as knowing exactly where my crops are and pressing, you know, the watering <laughs> burn at the same time and kind of really, you know, honing your, like, timing on these things. And by focusing on that, you get to kind of drown out everything else. Because at mm. first I was like, oh, they're really different. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm doing exactly the same thing. I'm treating them, <laughs> <laughs> I'm treating them the same way. <laughs> yeah. John, what about you? Um, what I wanted to, I, I was going to say, Souls-like games actually for me, it's such an old man thing to say. It's a bit like woodworking where like I'm so focused, I just don't think about anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Feel calm. And the thing I was going to say about, um, you know, digital, digital equipment in, in the academy, my experience in the U.S. is that, nobody cares and then one day this person walks in who's never shown any interest in anything you're doing or in fact has been hostile to it and they talk for like 20 minutes with virtual reality and they want to buy like 10 vr headsets and i'm like i don't i'm not going to use those <laughs> yeah uh, i mean you could get them if i get to use one but um experience um i don't i have no next console thing i don't think i'll be getting a console anytime soon um because i have kids and <laughs> and things um i'm super excited about spelunky too um I I'm I I hope Microsoft's vision for the future works because that would allow me to play games on my PC a lot. But I tried this Microsoft Flight Simulator, and Xbox Game Pass for PC uh, won't install anything on the drive. I actually, put software on because there's room on it, and it said you don't have permission on the computer that you own and built yourself from scratch. So it's like okay. <laughs> So go through this menu to do it. No, can't do that. It goes on like this. So I won't bore everybody. Um, but it was all a very retro experience because the answer turned out to be run with administrator. Um, <laughs> uh, that was the long version. I own it on Steam. The media thing, just the Xbox Game Pass never worked. But my story ended with run with administrator, which is super, super annoying. <laughs> that's kind of, that's, that's where I am. So I, I'm hoping Microsoft of all corporations will magically figure this out and then we can all live in a glorious future. So I'll buy a PS5 this time next year. Basically, what I'm <laughs> trusting Microsoft with our future—that sounds like a yeah, a it's, dangerous it's, idea. Yeah, they've they've they they're known for their efficient, uh, user-friendly software. I don't see the problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, for myself, because I'm a gaming degenerate, I'm definitely <laughs> definitely going to buy a PlayStation Five. And uh, as far as games, I'm looking forward to. I would have said. Uh, AC Valhalla, but I have very conflicted feelings about that game right now. Um, I'd say that, you know, I'm looking forward to whatever the next big indie title is. Uh, you know, there's always something that comes out around the console launch that really grabs a lot of attention. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, as far as what I've been playing recently, I've, I started the most recent God of War game on PlayStation mm. 4. Partly out of curiosity, I I went through a spell during my 20s uh, where I didn't play games roughly from 2001 to 2007. Uh, It was actually John Harney's fault for getting me back into (laughs) games. Um, But I missed missed all of the original God of War games. So I've never never played one uh, up until this point. And I played it partly because of that curiosity, uh, but then also maybe perhaps covering it for history respawned and looking at the ways in which uh, Viking history mythology has been adapted by games leading up to AC Valhalla. But, uh, you know, now with the issues with Ubisoft and kind of just the general state of the world, I don't know if I'm going to be doing that. But uh, 
it's an interesting game. It's a third-person combat game, and so my old arthritic hands aren't very good <laughs> at, uh, at those types of games, but I've put it on easy. I'm just kind of there for the story and the atmosphere and um, occasional button mashing when I have to do it. But uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the kind of emerging future of games this fall but at the same time i think that uh the industry and gaming in general has got a lot of issues that i would have hoped they would have worked out by this point but it just hasn't been the case so i'm not feeling very enthusiastic in other words <laughs> it's very 2020 of you bob oh, yeah. that's just <laughs> that's just reality wearing you down i know yeah. right Ugh. all right well uh thank you panel for joining me on this episode of History Respond. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. And thank you, listener, for uh, joining us on this episode of History Respond. If you enjoy our work, uh, please visit our website, www.historyrespond.com. And if you're interested in supporting the show, supporting our work, please visit our page on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respond. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.